Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Maria Blackwood. This episode is a sort of special episode. We're going with a little bit different format. We're going to have multiple guests on the program and then a sort of roundtable discussion at the end. Uh, and our subject is the frontiers of nationalism in Eastern Europe. We're taking a look at the history of nationalism, uh, sort of from a comparative perspective, and really focusing on a region that historically was the borderlands between a number of multi-ethnic empires, such as the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, later the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So these, these, this, these regions of Eastern Europe, which they are broken up into a number of nations. Both of our guests are my colleagues here at the Harvard Academy for International and Area Studies, doing postdocs and developing really interesting uh, book projects. Our first guest will be Christina Florea. Uh, she looks at the history of Bukovina during the 19th and 20th centuries. Our second guest is Malkozata Kuryańska, a historical sociologist who graduated uh, with a PhD in sociology from UC Berkeley. Her work is a historical sociological study of Congress Poland from the 18th through the 20th centuries. And then at the end of the episode, we'll get together with Margarita, Christina, and Marisha as well to talk, a, you know, sort of do a wrap-up discussion uh, on the, the value of studying uh, the history of nationalism uh, from the margins of, of the European historiography. I think it'll be a fascinating conversation. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And here's Christina Floria um, telling us about her very interesting manuscript in progress, Land of Longing. Christina, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me here. Christina Florea has her PhD from Princeton, newly minted, and she's currently working on a book manuscript provisionally entitled Land of Longing, Bukovina at the Crossroads of Empire. And I'm really excited about this conversation. I had not heard about a place called Bukovina. I'm showing my own uh, ignorance uh, before meeting you, Christina. And indeed, this will be our first conversation on the Ottoman History Podcast about a land called Bukovina, which hopefully I not the I have last never, one. yes, hopefully not the last, <laughs> and I'm much more likely to visit it now, I think, than I've ever been. Marcia, have you ever been to Bukovina? I have not. And Marcia's traveled extensively in Eastern Europe, so we're going a little bit off the beaten path of scholarship, but uh, I think as we'll be realizing, this region uh, of Eastern Europe is actually quite important and central to a lot of events that were going on uh, during the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. So, Christina, help us get situated. What is Bukovina? Where is Bukovina? And where, where was Bukovina during uh, your period of study? Right. Great question. First of all, I'm not inventing this place. <laughs> Trust me on that one. Second, okay, if I were to define it, I'd say it was a contested territory par excellence. Mm -hmm. It was contested not only by different states that um, came and went from the region, mm -hmm. but also by the different national groups that mm -hmm. inhabited it. And here, I mean, one of the things that impressed me always about it is how Bukovina had a special symbolic and strategic significance mm -hmm. for um, basically all the nationalities that lived there and for the states. So, for example, 
uh, Ukrainians or Ruthenians, as they're called under Austrian rule, refer to it as a cradle of Ukrainian culture. Mm-hmm. Then Romanians, Romanian nationalists especially, talk about Bukovina as their kidnapped province. And then because Chernovitz, which was once the administrative capital of mm-hmm. Bukovina, was a predominantly Jewish city, you also hear about it as Jerusalem on the Prut. Mm. It's also known as Little Vienna of the East. So there's a really rich mythology around it. But Christina, let's do a little Google, Google map. Where would we find uh, Bukovina today? Oh, today it's divided between three different states. So the northern half of what used to be Bukovina is in the south of Ukraine mm-hmm. or southwest. Um, the southern part is in Romania and there's a little bit of it in Moldova. I'm not sure if it will stay there, but that's where it is for now. So today it's a, a borderlands region yeah, divided border by, between and multiple states. Exactly. And Chernovitz, I mean, you'll find it under many different names. Now it's known as Chernivtsi. But also Romanians remember as Chernowitz, the mm-hmm. German version is Chernowitz and so on. So it's quite difficult to get there though today um, because of the, I mean, the railway and mm-hmm. everything is just no longer connected as well to Central Europe. Yeah. So we see it's one of these these spaces, this co- these coherent spaces that's divided by present day mm-hmm. uh, national borders. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which would be acro- anachronistic, at least for the the, pe- the yeah. people who have historically lived there. But as yeah. you're saying, it's also not something new that Bukovina is between uh, yes. spaces, um, which leads me to point out the fact, uh, and we do need to talk about, I know you work on the 19th century, but we need to talk about the fact that Bukovina was at one point uh, part of the Ottoman Empire, part of the Ottoman sphere of political influence. Um, I know you're not an expert on the Ottomans, but this might be our last our last <laughs> chance to talk about Ottoman Bukovina. <laughs> so, can you just tell us a little bit about life in Bukovina under you know during the Ottoman period? Right. I mean, the thing to remember about Bukovina is that before its incorporation into the Habsburg Empire, there was no such thing as a separate Bukovina. Mm. So in the Ottoman period, it was only the northwesternmost part of the Moldavian principality. Hmm. So at the time that it was incorporated into Austria, this happened after um, Russo-Ottoman War uh, that ended with the peace of Kuchukainarji or Kainarja. Kuchukainarji, so it was late 18th century. Yes, this was the late 18th century that Austria got this territory in exchange for its neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently, uh, Joseph, this Emperor Joseph II's idea was that this territory would have great uh, commercial significance, mm-hmm. and it would also serve to create a link between Transylvania and Galicia, mm-hmm. which were separated at the time. But before that, yeah, as you said, it was part of this province, which was under Ottoman suzerainty, which meant that it wasn't fully autonomous. It was also not fully incorporated into the Ottoman Empire but had this really ambiguous status that meant that um, the local rulers, the princes, could sometimes press for more autonomy, but at the same time they had these duties towards the port, like paying tribute, for example, Mm -hmm. or delivering um, animals or wheat and so on. Now, the the most interesting thing from my perspective is that before it became part of the Austrian Empire, Bukovina was in this kind of place where the Orthodox Church really played a huge role. Yeah, It was a massive, first of all, massive economic actor in the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it was, in this sense, it was both, um, I guess, part of the Ottoman space and at the same time part of this broader Eastern Orthodox world. So, for example, uh, monasteries and churches in Bukovina would send money periodically to other churches throughout the Ottoman Empire to protect mm-hmm. Orthodoxy. When the Austrians uh, came in, 
they came in with this idea of secularizing mm. uh, Bukovina and integrating it into this modern centralized state. So the first thing that happened is a lot of uh, monasteries were closed down. That right. was one of the bigger changes. And that's a very interesting story for the history of Eastern mm -hmm. Europe that maybe some of our listeners might take umbrage with, that actually it's after the Ottoman loss of a lot of these territories that uh, conf conflicts between um, the church uh, religious, as a religious institution and, and states um, take, a, take a new shape rather yes, than this, yes. this idea maybe that the Ottomans yeah. as uh, Muslim rulers were. Um, yeah, I actually found that really surprising. I mean, I'm educated in Romania, so I heard all sorts of things about Ottoman rule <laughs> before actually reading this. And one of the most interesting things for me is it seemed like for the first time, the church had the state meddling with its affairs when the Austrians When the Austrians are... Yeah, in Bukovina. Whereas before, they were pretty much autonomous, with the exception that these financial burdens were growing more and more as the Ottoman Empire was in crisis. But other than that, the church was its own thing. Pe o colină deasupra frutului se ridică Cernăuții, capitala Bucovinei. So, um, as you've already outlined, uh, for the past few centuries, Bukovina has been a site of contention between uh, various multi-ethnic empires and now nation-states. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your research on Bukovina in the 19th century? So the project as a whole focuses on Bukovina and especially on uh, the, this capital, Chernovitz, that I follow from the late 19th century to the post-World War II years. And what I'm trying to do is use the region as a lens through which to examine the transfigurations of East Central Europe as a whole in this period. Um, so, I mean, I think this place is just an excellent laboratory for comparative history and transnational history. And the way I'm trying to do it is kind of go beyond the nation state in my narrative without um, losing the sense for the local that you usually do when you write international history, for example. And so for the late 19th century, I actually start my narrative around the 1870s because that was when... I guess Austrian Bukovina really came into its own. In 1875, um, the Austrians opened the university there. And then what followed was this explosion in the, uh, the educational system and the schools. And this is very funny. It was called at the time the Bildungstrang, which was like the craze for education that everybody had, especially here at the periphery. And um, it was said at the time that if you were somewhere in the street in Chernovitz and you shouted, uh, shouted in German, Guten Morgen, Herr Doktor, a uh, hundred people would turn their heads and respond because everybody was a doctor there. So this was side by side with a really large degree uh, or high literacy rates. And that was something that I was very interested in, like this contrast between craze for education, high literacy rates, and another phenomenon that was happening at the same time, which was mass the mass exodus. We'll get to that in just a second, but yeah. when you say high literacy rates, is it, yeah. is it German, the language of the mm -hmm. Austro-Hungarian Empire that this literacy t is taking place in? Or is it more an explosion of many different 
Because I know that many languages are spoken right, in Bukovina. Right. Yeah. So, well, there's something really interesting about this that I found the official policy of the Austrian administration was to do away with illiteracy in Bukovina. This was their way of legitimizing themselves. Um, and that was through a variety of schools. Some of them were German language schools, but a lot of them by the late 19th century were schools in the national languages as well. Except when one went from primary school to middle school level, so gymnasium as they called it, um, then one had to use the German language. And there was also um, something really interesting, like a special kind of school um, that was bilingual. And a lot of the nationalists in Bukovina at the time were complaining that bilingualism is damaging, um, you know, the development of mm -hmm. children uh, who weren't native speakers of German. So, but at the same time, the number one thing that they try to do or the way they measured their success was through the number of schools that mm -hmm. they obtained. And they wanted gymnasium, just like the Austrian administration. And they competed within the framework of these imperial institutions. And that I thought was very interesting. Um, all, all the, at the same time, there were also these disputes about which language should be the language of teaching and so on. Which, which the main languages were there? Oh, right. So this is very interesting. That actually, there were three official languages. Um, they're called Landessprachen, so they're like the official languages of this, this crown. Mm -hmm. And those were German, Ruthenian, and Romanian. So if you look at the um, transcripts of the provincial diets, so the local yeah. parliament, you find people speaking all three languages and they're transcribed like that. So you yeah. see similar things in the schools where, for example, I found, um, what are they called, school inspectors who were reporting that they went into some classrooms and they saw um, that teachers would have to offer the same explanation in three different languages, which greatly slowed <laughs> progress, sure. as you can imagine. <laughs> but is enriching in its own way. I, yes. I mean, these are three very different languages, too, because one is... German, one is yes, uh, yeah. Ruthenian or Ukrainian, yeah. a Slavic language, and then, of course, Romanian, yeah. which is a, a Romance language. It's a yeah. very, very interesting space. So as you already mentioned, uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there was a large outflow of people from Bukovina. Could you tell us a little bit about where people went and why? Mm, yeah, this is actually my favorite topic. So this was called the, um, well, the local press at the time referred to this as immigration fever, which is very interesting because all of them uh, kind of thought about it as a kind of illness or a symptom of a graver illness that they're really trying to discover. Mm. And this, at least as far as I can tell, started around the 1870s in Bukovina and also affected the neighboring province of Galicia. And to my surprise, actually, the first waves of immigrants left Bukovina to go to Russia, so they crossed the frontier into the Russian Empire. And according to the um, Austrian officials whose reports I read, apparently Russian border guards on the other side of the Dniester River would lure people from Bukovina and Galicia over to the other side with food and drinks and promises of free land. And many of them actually left. Um, and there were many cases in villages across the frontier where hundreds of families would leave overnight. Um, so the most striking thing for me was, I guess, how central this phenomenon was in this period and how it concerned everybody, both nationalists and imperial mm -hmm. officials. Whereas I had just come into the story assuming nationalism is the point of departure. Right. And I would just somehow come back to this question. And they, yeah. and people were going all over the place. I know that you, you've written about yeah. 
a lot of people from Bukovina going to Canada, for example. Yes, yes. So they ended up, Canada was actually one of the uh, better places to land. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there were others who ended up in Brazil. These were some of the most terrifying stories I found in the archives. When I was reading just reports of people, you know, being killed by mosquitoes in the jungle or in the Amazonian forest. Well, that'll forest. happen. <laughs> Malaria is a... <laughs> well, I didn't expect it to happen to Bukovinans. <laughs> mosquitoes aren't very popular around there. But so these people, when they're completely unprepared, mm -hmm. um, they landed, they were promised these lands, and then it turns out they have to clear the forest. They have to, you know, build a new life. And that was very fascinating for me, especially since a lot of them brought their old frictions and problems yeah. from the old world with them, and these mm -hmm. took on new dimensions once they landed in these new places. And it's a familiar mm -hmm. story of the period. You know, this is the period of the great, mm -hmm. like, migration revolution. Yes. The, the period that really made the United States as a country mm -hmm. a, destina a destination for immigrants. Everything you said sounds really familiar to mm -hmm. the case of the Ottoman Empire, maybe, of Mount Lebanon, where there was a real uh, emigration mm -hmm. fever during the latter half of the 19th century. Uh, people were going to the Americas, like, all over, as you said, and uh, some did really well and really liked it. And some actually came back to, to oh, Lebanon. Yes. And yeah. uh, if we look at the work of Akram Khater uh, in this book, Inventing Home, he talks about how this experience of migration and then sometimes return migration or diasporic mm -hmm. connections really changed the way people were thinking about, you know, family, issues mm -hmm. of class, issues of gender, and, and maybe even issues of the nation. So I guess we can end with one last question, which is, you know, this is the era of nationalism, and uh, Bukovina is a very heterogeneous space. Doesn't It's not really conducive to the nation-state framework from an ethno-linguistic perspective. And for people who were involved in these international circuits and on all of the politics of the time, was there an attempt to imagine uh, Bukovina as a national community, so to speak? Or is this ultimately a region that was sort of pulled apart by this uh, mm. period of nationalism that begins in the 19th century and really continues well into the 20th century right. very late well this is an interesting question i was actually asked before can we even speak about such a thing as a bukovinian and when does this idea emerge and funnily enough it's a lot of uh nationalists who came up with this idea in the i would say post-world war one years mm -hmm. for i'll give you an example it was this romanian historian jon nistor from mm -hmm. bukovina and he wrote at one point, uh, he was very much for the unification with Romania. And he wrote at one point this article uh, describing what he said. Um, he, he described basically a new species of human being that he said had emerged in Bukovina. And that was called the Homo Bukovinensis. And um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> can't find it at the museum, but I'll tell you what the characteristics are. Uh, one of them was national indifference. Ah. Uh, another one was passivity and mm -hmm. uh, penchant for changing, changing one's political preferences mm. according to wherever the wind blew. Yeah. So um, he said that this species of person has to be done away with if Bukovina is ever to become fully integrated into the Romanian yeah. nation state. What he didn't know, however, is that he would be among those who <laughs> have to be done away with. Ah. <laughs> Towards the late 30s, even somebody like him, who was an irredentist, had become a regionalist, essentially. Mm. But there's another thing that I wanted to say about uh, nationalism in mm -hmm. the region, or something that I realized as I started researching this. And that was that there were so many different kinds of nationalism there that coexisted. Yeah. And somehow I came in with this idea that, you know, it was going from an open kind of nationalism to an integral nationalism. But it wasn't, in fact, like that. 
And I was really struck by this moment after World War I when nationalist leaders, Romanian nationalist leaders in Bukovina come face to face with their co-nationals in the Old Kingdom, as it was called. And they don't recognize themselves as members of the same community. Mm. These people are considered to be peculiar Austrian dandies, basically. Yeah. Right? They're co-nationals across the border. And they have very different ways of imagining this community, basically. Yeah. They can, I don't know, I mean, until very late in the game, they could not even imagine that they would be part of a different state other than Austrian Empire. Yeah. That I thought was very interesting. And also the fact that the relationship with the empire wasn't always conflictual or yeah. wasn't necessarily antithetical. But as for the idea of Bukovina, I think the diaspora actually had a very um, played a very big part in mm -hmm. bringing it together as a coherent entity. Yeah. Um, so Bukovina yeah. lived on in the imagination of the diaspora, but not as a nation state. Yes, essentially. I actually think in many ways it's more real in the imagination as yeah. an entity than it is in reality. Well, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, what you were describing is very common to a lot of experiences in these imperial states, the Ottoman Empire included, people only realized very late, you know, in the game that, mm. you know, it wasn't going to be an empire forever. And sort of nationalism for yes. some people was an afterthought, whereas for the small group of nationalists who wrote about it, it was yeah. just about everything. And yeah. while, you know, we have exceptions in history, like I always think of Switzerland as sort of like yeah. an alternative way of imagining nation, places like Bukovina often found themselves in the middle. I'm glad you mentioned this about Switzerland. I just remember that some Bukovinans in the interwar period liked to describe Bukovina as the Switzerland of Europe, of Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And they kept arguing that, you know, something had gone terribly wrong after 1918, that there was a moment of opening where Romania, by incorporating these former Austrian provinces, could have reimagined what the nation should be all about mm. and how the nation state could be organized. But instead, they just imposed the old model and this led to centralization, loss mm -hmm. of autonomy, and so on. But it's very interesting that this idea of something that could have been tried here on a different model was lost. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you, Christine. It's been nice talking to thank you, you so and much. good luck. We're, um, I'll give you one last opportunity. I know you love jokes. Do you have a joke? <laughs> one of your famous Bukovina jokes to tell us to conclude oh, the dear, interview. I have a whole series. Which one should I pick? Okay, well, one of my favorites two men meet in a train station and one of them asks the other, uh, excuse me, sir, where are you coming from? And the other one shrugs his shoulders and says, to be honest, I don't know. I haven't read the newspaper yet. <laughs> this was a place where you really had to follow developments in the newspaper to know where you're from. Which state you're coming from. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, we've just been talking to Cristina Florea about a little introduction to the history of Bukovina, which for me was a real first time uh, learning about this space. Thanks everyone for listening to that conversation. Thank you, Marisha, for joining us on the podcast in, in your first episode of Ottoman History Podcast. Thank you for having me. So how do you like being on the podcast, Marisha? Um, well, this is a new and exciting experience for me. I've never been on a podcast before. Uh, though I have, however, uh, 
been on the radio in Kazakhstan. In Kazakhstan, that was your that was your radio debut my, in Kazakhstan. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was uh, interviewed about my dissertation project. So. Oh, well, there <laughs> you go. So you've had some experience, <laughs> some some practice for what's going on here. Yeah, that's uh, you know you get to the point in uh, dissertation research where. It's all you can talk about in any language. So. <laughs> sure, exactly. And, and simultaneously can't talk about, right? What is your dissertation project? We should tell our listeners, Marisha is a historian of the Soviet Union and the, the broader Russian world, uh, and specifically focusing on Central Asia. Yeah, my dissertation is broadly about the processes of elite formation in the early Soviet period. Um, I look uh, in particular at the first generation of Kazakhs who joined the Communist Party and then ascended to its upper ranks. So the ethnic Kazakh members of Kazakhstan's political elite, uh, primarily in the 1920s and 30s, though um, I go uh, a little bit into the 1960s. And some of these figures were probably educated in Russian under the Russian Empire, and presumably this helped facilitate their rise in the party. But a lot of them are actually coming from really different cultural milieus in the culture of the Soviet Union, uh, you know, during that early period, right? Yeah, education is actually um, one of uh, the key factors I've found in terms of determining who, um, who joined the party elite um, in the early Soviet period. Uh, so on a very basic level, these Kazakhs uh, were able to join the party and ascend up its ranks because they were literate in Russian at the time of the revolution. And uh, some of them did have university education uh, in Russian. But what's really interesting about this particular group is um, that they were not, in fact, the most educated segment of Kazakh mm -hmm. society. So um, literacy across the board among Kazakhs in 1917 was very, very low in the low single digits, but you had uh, a group of people, uh, which was uh, a couple of hundred, who had completed university education uh, in Russian. Um, so either in Kazan or in St. Petersburg or in Moscow, uh, in a couple of cases actually in mm -hmm. Warsaw. But those were not generally the people who became communists. The people who became communists and then um, became kind of the most important communists in Kazakhstan were people who had been educated primarily in what were called Russian native schools. And these were usually bilingual or multilingual educational institutions set up by the Russian imperial government in order to create a class of people who could become uh, imperial functionaries, basically members of the bureaucracy. And one, one thing that I found uh, throughout my research, which I think is really interesting, is that these people who, who became the communist elite uh, in early Soviet Kazakhstan were generally people who had exposure to Russians before the revolution and who had kind of positive life experiences um, mm. involving Russians. So through education, through personal relationships and professional relationships, this kind of this uh, imperial contact was very, very important in determining the political landscape of Kazakhstan after the revolution. Well, it's a very interesting project, and uh, we wish you the best of luck. I know you're very close to to finishing uh, the dissertation. Thank you. I'll need it. Yeah, and it's also it's a project that actually works really well with the next conversation um, we're all going to be hearing. Uh, Marisha and I sat down with uh, Magojata Kurianska, who, as we said at the beginning of this podcast, is indeed working on the historical sociology of Congress Poland. And in fact, one of the things she really looks at is 
interaction between elites and non-elites uh, in different parts of uh, former Congress Poland uh, and different forms of political, economic, social, and indeed cultural capital that these elites possessed and, and how they sought to utilize them in different historical contexts. So without giving any further preview of this uh, interesting research, uh, here is our interview with Małgorzata Kurianska. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Maria Blackwood. In this interview, we're speaking with one of my colleagues at uh, the Harvard Academy for International and Area Studies, Malgojata Kurianska. She has her PhD from the Department of Sociology at University of California, Berkeley, and her broad field is historical sociology, political sociology, and specifically sociology of 19th and 20th century Poland. Malgojata, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on here to talk about this subject that's kind of far from my own expertise, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to... Um, demonstrate for some of our listeners some of the connections between sociological topics uh, in Poland during the period of your study and maybe look for comparisons in the Balkans and in the Ottoman Empire in regions that might resemble Poland. So I'll start off with an easy question. A lot of sociology deals with more contemporary contexts. Not always is it historical. So why did you choose a historical context for your sociological questions? And why did you choose 19th century Poland in particular? Thanks, Chris. That's a really good question. So uh, I study Poland or 19th century Poland because it's a great sort of case to analyze how different regimes influence civil society development. So sort of my broader project really looks at how states and elite conflicts shape the development of civil society. Now, uh, the the regions of the former Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, right, as you know, there was no Poland in the 19th century, are a great case for studying this precisely because what you essentially have is a country or a region that for between 200 and 100 years, the regions shared a political state prior to the end of the 18th century. Mm -hmm. They shared sort of like a dominant class, which was mostly Polish in culture and in citizenship and had within the core of Poland-Lithuania, similar ethnic dynamics, but sort of variation on the borderlands, both Eastern Mm -hmm. and Western, right? And what happened at the end of the 18th century is that the country was separated by three empires, Russia, Prussia, and Austria. And this sort of gives us like what we would call a quasi-experiment to look at how later policies of regional incorporation influence development in the three regions. So to recap, you have the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, uh, which is which borders the Habsburg Empire, Muscovy. It borders the Ottoman Empire as well. And then as the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, as different regions of it are incorporated into different states mm-hmm. with their own dynamics, we can see how uh, the, those different regions uh, sort of diverge or experience similar processes as part of that incorporation. Precisely. And the 19th century is also great for studying um, civil society development because that's sort of the time when civil society really developed in many parts of Europe. So you look comparatively across all three partitions? I do. So yeah, my bigger project looks uh, specifically at four regions in the three in three different empires. Warsaw, or specifically the Warsaw Governorate, which was incorporated into the Russian Empire in 1815. 
following the Congress of Vienna, I look at Lviv, the Lviv province and the Duchy of Krakow. So Lviv was incorporated into Austria in 1772 following the first partition, but mm-hmm. Krakow actually was independent until 1846, mm-hmm. at which point it was incorporated into Austria. And Poznan, which became part of um, Prussia, later Germany, so became part of Prussia also in 1815, and then mm-hmm. Germany when Prussia was unified, yeah. So what are the processes and dynamics that are at play in these different regions during your period of study? Mostly what I'm looking at is how in the 19th century, sort of these different uh, state policies and economic development influenced two aspects of civil society development in the region. So one is the degree to which civil society was dominated by elites or more autonomous from them, and also the extent to which civil society replicated or undermined existing socioeconomic cleavages, and as anybody who studies the region knows, the most significant non-economic cleavages in this region were ethnic. Now, ethnic meant was sort of a conglomeration of things, Mm -hmm. right? It was sort of cultural, so linguistic, and also religious. And those two things really overlapped to me to create ethnic distinctions in the regions. Um, And what I basically argue is that um, Economic development matters for civil society development, but when we really care about the character of civil society, right? So sort of these two aspects, which I claim within the literature, there's good mm-hmm. reasons for uh, understanding, you no, know, for believing that they are more likely to support democratic or inclusionary and exclusionary mm-hmm. regimes, that it's really um, state policies and specifically conflicts or the lack of conflicts between different local elite factions that influences the character, the characteristics of civil society along these two dimensions. Could you give us just one example from your research? I know you look at a lot of different cases and dynamics, but probably one of the most interesting examples is the case of Warsaw. Now, the reason why I say that is because it's really fascinating because you see a lot of flips within the case, right? So we have elite domination and what I what what we really see in Warsaw is that from the beginning of civil society development civil society was really coaxed and dominated by local Polish elites the reason for that is because from 1815 uh, the region was under Russian rule and you really saw the saw the struggle between Polish elites and the Russian state Um, you know in 1815 there was this moment where where Polish elites really thought that they could cooperate with the Russian state Mm -hmm. but it was pretty soon after that they felt themselves that they were not getting the political power that they hoped uh, the constitution was th- that was established was being encroached on. And they, what you see is you see the slow turn towards civil society development. Now, originally, the civil society is more of an elite civil society, right? We don't mm-hmm. even have non-elites participating. So you see elites sort of organizing among themselves in these sort of circles at universities or the Freemasonry, right? And uh, again, this idea is that all of this organizing from the beginning is very political, right? It's sort of organizing against this exclusion from the political institutions by the Russian state. Mm-hmm. But over the course of the 19th century, we see this same dynamic that it's really elites organizing against the state within civil society. And the more they become excluded from pol- uh, political institutions, the more they turn towards civil society. But over time, uh, non-elites become more absorbed into the civil society. Again, here we have two reasons. One is economic development, right, which sort of helps further the the solution of feudalism but also what i claim is um we see a a significant transformation in the position of polish elites over the 19th century which switches their desire from you know just wanting to organize them among themselves and mobilizing non-elites in these sort of struggles moments of struggles where we see multiple revolts towards um moving towards a model which is a little bit more dangerous which is organizing non-elites right Mm. and we can get to that a little bit later so 
there's two levels, right? So you have the elite domination, which is going on throughout the 19th century, as elites are very focused in fostering sort of support within civil society against the Russian state. But this other aspect is the one that's also really interesting, which is um, how Polish elites deal with the question of ethnicity and mm. what it means to be Polish in Polish culture. And the reason this question is interesting is because in the beginning of the 19th century, Warsaw, of any of the regions of the former mm -hmm. Polish Union Commonwealth, actually had the most um, integration and cooperation between Poles and Jews. So again, so the Jewish minority is sort of the most important in these former crown lands or the mm -hmm. center of Poland-Lithuania. But by the end of the 19th century, you actually see the flip side. So Polish elites are no longer trying to cooperate and include the Jewish minority in their struggle against the Russian state, but they actually turn towards a nationalism that's exclusionary. Mm. You don't see this. There's one case in, in the former Poland-Lithuania where you don't see this, which is Kraków. So again, so it's not just that this was inevitably going to happen, I even see. that is where nationalism was heading throughout Europe, right? But the question is why? So could you say a little bit about how that compares to uh, the case of Austria-Hungary, uh, since the nature of Polish political participation was very different there than it was in the Russian Empire? Right. So actually, uh, what I think is happening is that because you have this excluded Polish elite in Warsaw, they're turning again to mobilize civil society against the Russian state. And then what happens is at the end of the 19th century, um, you see this sort of switch from the Polish elites still trying to mobilize non-elites, right? So when they basically lose all sort of forms of capital, right, they're only cultural elites. So again, they can only have their um, some cultural distinctions and cultural capital like they can read. They turn towards really mobilizing broader society, but they are including the Jewish minority into this mobilization even into the 1870s, right? And you could see this, could have see this in the cooperation between Poles and Jews in the creation of secret schools or Polish secret schools. But at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, you see Polish elites actually turning towards exclusion. And what I say is part of this reason has to do with policies of Russification and what they meant. They essentially meant that the cultural capital that Polish elites had now became devalued, right? So they previously could um, turn their cultural capital, again, this knowledge, linguistic, the fact that they could write and the fact that they had some sort of cultural prestige and social prestige, they could pursue, pursue positions in the bureaucracy, but one that's limited to them. And you really see that happening at the end of the 19th century. And it's exa exacerbated by sort of um, an economic downturn, which, which itself, if anybody knows, is because Russia was trying to industrialize its regions and sort of turn mm -hmm. away from industrializing Congress Poland. Um, they sort of see a new kind of competition. So they're in political competition with the Russian state where they always wanted to mobilize the Jewish minority in their support. But now they see themselves as sort of needing to find other ways of economic, of gaining economic means or economic wealth. And they turn towards previously really undesirable positions, right? So mm. historically, you know, commerce, being a tradesman was not desirable, but it was the only thing that they could do. Uh, these positions were filled by the Jewish minority, and you see this turn towards no longer wanting to assimilate the Jewish minority, but a priori rejecting them from Polish from the Polish community. Um, we can later talk about, you know, if it's really about economics, if it's about politics. I do think that there's really interesting. If you look at the sequence of events, you can really see that it was in this case really the economics that mattered. Um, in Krakow, which was in the Habsburg Empire. Now I'm going to treat that case a little bit differently from the case of Lviv, um, 
because the dynamics are different, right? In Lviv, sort of the Polish elites are sort of more like an imperial power themselves because they're a minority that historically has ruled over a non-Polish majority, mm -hmm. which is the Ukrainian majority. You also have this history of the Austria, uh, of the Habsburg Empire in the early 19th century sort of fostering Ukrainian nationalism as a way of dividing and conquer, right? But it's in the mid-19th century that we see a switch in how the Habsburg or the Austrian Empire approaches its regional incorporation, right? So previously they had been just as repressive um, as the other empires, but in the 19th, in the mid-19th century, after they, they lose these external wars with with France and Italy, they switch to how they they switch how they govern their region, and they switch from what I would call a more direct form of colonial rule, if we want to talk about this as colonialism, to where it's a more indirect one, right? In Krakow, this means that you basically have Polish elites ruling a mostly Polish majority. And there, um, because, and I argue, because you don't really get the same threatened position, Polish elites aren't threatened, their economic uh, capital isn't threatened, their cultural capital isn't threatened, their political power isn't threatened. They actually continue into the beginning of the 20th century to privilege sort of class and property over ethnicity as being the sort of the most important thing, right? So you see elites really trying to forge alliances with other ethnic groups in mm -hmm. the Austrian parliament. You see this also happening in elite-led organizations. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't ethnic conflict. It's there, but again, but it's more ethnic conflict that's driven by the interests of the peasantry, right? So like in Warsaw, you had the sort of the gentry that was slipping into the sort of middle class fighting with the Jewish minority for their position. In Krakow, what you saw was upwardly mobile peasants wanting to do the same, right? And part of my argument is it really matters who was in this uh, competition and what the interests were, whereas it was these cultural Polish elites um, who were in competition in Warsaw, you really see a blossoming of um, anti-Semitism and this rejection of, you know, the Jewish minority from the Polish community. But in Krakow, Polish elites are actually working still to support assimila uh, assimilationism, right? And that mm. is still the dominant ideology until the until World War One in Krakow. So we see how Poland provides this fascinating opportunity to study nationalism and political formation in modern Europe with huge repercussions for our understanding, of course, of the 20th century, not only in Eastern Europe, but really throughout the European continent. And we also see how a lot of the questions you're asking are completely relevant to uh, the study of politics in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, a lot of the same uh, questions, you know, of course, of whether ethnic or communal boundaries, inclusion and exclusion uh, come to bear on Ottoman history and really to see how all, you know, similar processes are playing out, you know, throughout both Europe and the Ottoman Middle East, let's call it in the Balkans. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really fascinating. You're, this is all a historical story we've been talking about, but you're a sociologist. And so I'm really interested in learning about your theoretical approaches and conceptual tools uh, that you use in your study how you use socio sociology to shed new light on uh, historical uh, events and processes. You know, sociology is anytime we see a case, it's sort of in a way butchering history, right? Because you're, you're sort of torn. You want to pay attention to all the great details of a historical mm -hmm. case, but really the drive is always how does this build a certain theory. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the theories that I really use is sort of combine two approaches. So one is this elite conflict approach, which really looks at how conflicts between elites drive social transformation. Mm -hmm. 
and how you really need conflicts between elites, even for sort of like non-elite, non-elite conflicts to matter. And the other one is Bourdieu's theory of capital and fields. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you must have heard me talking about, you know, economic capital, cultural yeah. capital. Um, and the reason I do this is because, you know, elite conflicts are very easily used when you're just talking about Let's say feudal times, right, mm -hmm. or pre, you know, pre pre capitalist times mm -hmm. when it was very clear who the elite was, right? You usually had a ruling elite that sort of yeah. controlled all these forms of capital. But what we see happening later, and I think this story is really important for the 19th century, at least for my cases, is you see the diversification of elites, right? Mm. And this diversification of elites really happens when you see a diversification of capital. When you know the breakdown of feudalism basically means that you don't need. Uh, literally like social nobility status mm -hmm. to be able to accrue these other forms of capital right you have the development you have the development of sort of this economic class which doesn't have political adverse political power it doesn't have the same cultural capital mm -hmm. or social capital but they still become an important class and this i think this framework of looking at elite conflicts through this um, lens of capital allows us to really understand both what is happening to these elites right and how it matters how they're change in the position of the field of power, right? So sort of having all these forms of capital and then slowly yeah. losing them really changes their approaches to social organization and so social mobilization. And so by capital, you mean, for example, political capital is control over political organizations and processes. Cultural capital might be, you know, literati or whatnot. Economic capital, of course, is property or control over, you know, I don't know, factories yeah, land, and this kind of money, stuff. right. And then cultural capital is really an interesting part in itself, because as you know, Bourdieu mostly uses it in relation to economic capital, right. Mm -hmm. And cultural capital has this tension when you're looking at the 19th century, and you can see this tension really, you know, in the things that the elites were writing, for mm -hmm. instance, at the time is they both wanted to preserve the use of cultural capital as a capital of distinction, mm -hmm. right? It distinguished, historically distinguished them from the peasants, it distinguished them from the low classes. You know, Bourdieu is all writing, writes about how we still see this mm -hmm. sort of social reproduction through cultural capital, and how cultural capital and economic capital are interrelated. But especially when you're talking about nationalism, cultural capital has this other side, yeah. where you turn, where you converted into social capital, right? And these two functions of cultural capital are really clashing, right? Because mm -hmm. one is again about sort of saying that one group only has this cultural capital and is very different and that's where the cultural capital has its value, yeah. right? But then when, you, when you're looking about at social capital, it's really about erasing these social distinctions. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting how elites were not necessarily willing to forego this, this distinction until they absolutely had to. Right. Right. It's only until they have cultural capital, which doesn't convert into economic capital in Warsaw, that they really, you know, go full-fledged, full sort of organize these secret schools and are giving their cultural capital, right, the thing that distinguished them, the fact that they could read, the fact that they could write, that they were different. They're actually making themselves the same as the peasants who, they, who before were very different from them. While you employ sociological methods in your questions, you've also done a lot of historical legwork. Could you tell us about some of the archives and historical sources you've used in this study? Uh, yes, so this study definitely made me appreciate historians a lot more, um, especially historians of a region that, you know, and I keep on saying this to everyone, that went through multiple wars, which means that the archives were burned, right? So studying anything, and my project really extends, um, I looked at documents 
from the 19th century, but also from the interwar period. Mm -hmm. And really, I mean, the documents that exist from the interwar period are just so much better and so much richer because they only had to survive one war run, not two wars. Um, so some of the things that I use are associational registries, which survive for some regions, but not others, right? So originally when going to the field, I had this dream that I could collect registries from every place, but that just doesn't exist. Uh, my favorite example is that I have volume two of the associational registry for the Warsaw Governorate. <laughs> there is no volume one. We know that volume two starts with organization 62. You know, so um, I also, but in, in addition to sort of archival materials, which include these associational registries, uh, documents collected by states, um, both on organizations um, and on what they thought about those organizations. Mm -hmm. I also used published historical research. And this is, again, where I really appreciate historians. Yeah. So not just secondary research, but I mean, there is this Polish historical society that has loved to collect primary documents yeah. and publish them, right? Yeah. So there's literally volumes of all of the sort of letters and anything that was published during the four years, same at the end of the 18th century in Poland, right? So there's mm -hmm. volumes and they sort of like, uh, arrange the volumes based mostly on the on the topics discussed in specific letters. There's also volumes of secret press articles. Now you can imagine this would be really hard to go and collect all yourself. Exactly. But they've already collected it, right? Sort of these like all secret press articles that were published uh, during the 1863 rebellion. Um, also diaries. So the diaries are re I read, I mean, were written by actors during the 19th century, but they've been published, right? Yeah. Which makes my life a lot easier so thank you to historians yeah and and sometimes even tracking down those published primary sources can be efforts in themselves because they're published in such small numbers and maybe don't always make it into all the university catalogs i mean we're glad to hear that you're so grateful to historians who are some of the historians of poland or you know the region you study that have really influenced your work most historians who look at this time period focus on one region and sort mm -hmm. of often make these broad assumptions about, let's say, Polish nationalism mm -hmm. looking just as war at Warsaw, which you really can't do because these regions were different, right? They yeah. had different dynamics. Uh, so somebody who I really, whose work I really love and whose work has influenced me is Antoni Polonski, who wrote literally volumes on Polish-Jewish relations uh, in these regions, so across mm -hmm. regions. And his work, you know, when I was starting to learn about this case was really influential in my understanding Probably the best research that exists in this region is the cross-ethnic, it's the ethnic relations question, right? Because, I mean, anti-Semitism yeah. is an important topic. It's been studied a lot, and a lot of good work on it has been published. So you have people like Stanislaw Blavas, who wrote about positivism and uh, Polish-Jewish relations, Robert Blobaum, who has this, like, really great analysis of the boycott, that took place in 1912 and really who was supporting it and who wasn't, which you can imagine for somebody like me really matters, right? Yeah. Theodora Weeks, but there's also other people who, historians whose work I really like because they don't just give us a sort of narrative of what was going on, but are really great at showing uh, as much as they can in numbers. So Andrzej Chvalba, for instance, wrote about this question of the change in bureaucracy under Russian rule in Poland, which for me was really important, right? Because even though in mm -hmm. 1863, that's when Russification takes place and Russia has sort of this project of removing Poles from positions of not just 
political institutions, but the bureaucracy, right? So not just even sort of lower positions of power that you see that in numbers that actually doesn't take effect until the later, later in the 19th century, right? Mm -hmm. So the policy is sort of like written in 1863, but it takes a while to develop, mm -hmm. you know, or people who've written about co-ops, but again, yeah. Bartes and Gurnich were two really important scholars, right? Because, but they wrote about different regions. Um, so I, I was really excited when I found both volumes mm -hmm. sort of which they in which they detailed who was participating in what role in agricultural cooperatives, but they weren't speaking to each mm -hmm. other, right? But I was able to take those two volumes and really get a better understanding of what, of how these two regions compared. All right. And for those who didn't catch all those names, Magujata has given us a short reading list that we've got on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Magujata, thanks again for talking to us today. It was really interesting to hear about your work and how you approach historical topics from a sociological perspective. Thanks for having me. This was really great. Okay, welcome back. Chris Grayton and Maria Blackwood here. We've just heard two really fun conversations with uh, two of my colleagues here at Harvard Academy. Uh, Christina Florea, who uh, was talking about Bukovina at the beginning of this episode, uh, and, and just recently, Malgorzata Koryanska, who's talking about uh, sort of historical sociology of Congress Poland. Uh, so two cases of um, places in, in Eastern Europe that didn't quite fit to the, the nation model uh, of the 19th century and really became sites of uh, imperial contention between different um, multi-ethnic empires. So Marisha, we learned a lot in these conversations. For me, it was, it was very enlightening, but we also heard a lot of familiar stories, right? Things that gel with, I know, what I know from the Ottoman and post-Ottoman Middle East and probably some of what you know from the history of the Russian Empire and then later the Soviet Union. Yeah, I think um, these two cases are uh, especially interesting in juxtaposition with each other because you have um, two regions that were subject to some of the same influences, and yet there are many differences uh, in, in the particular stories uh, both of you are telling. And the difference is something that's really important, I think, within the larger historiography of nationalism. You know, if there's any topic that's been written about in virtually every corner of the world, it's probably nationalism. Yet, still, the historiography in its origin and in many of its biases continues to be based on Western Europe, where ideas about nationalism seem to have emerged and crystallized at earliest moments. And I really like that in the conversations we've had, we've looked at places that were impacted by nationalism, but have usually been held as peripheral to, to that story. The, the margins of, of would-be Europe, the would-be margins of would-be Europe. So I want to ask both of you, maybe we'll start with Malgojata. What do you think it means to study nationalism from a place like uh, Congress Poland in Eastern Europe that's often been uh, considered peripheral to some of these phenomena? Chris, I think my two off-the-cuff responses that really come to my head is, first, that if you're looking at Western Europe versus Eastern Europe, uh, there are really two very different kinds of nationalism. One is sort of a na nation-building nationalism that comes from the top down, right? And I think that's more of the story of Western Europe. But if I think the way that we think of nationalism, it actually better fits the stories from Eastern Europe, and mm. especially a place like Congress Poland, when we think of it in a very negative light, right? It's not a nationalism meant to assimilate everyone and bring them into one political state, but it's really a nationalism that 
you know, as I was talking about the transition that you see from the 19th century that goes from being this nationalism that tries to really embrace and assimilate everyone for political reasons that turns into a nationalism that really is exclusionary mm. um, and radical for political reasons. Mm -hmm. And I think if we asked anybody on the street now, that's probably, I mean, maybe that's my guess. That's what they think of nationalism, right? Not sort of nationalism in a positive light, but really highlighting the negative aspect of nationalism, which is always to some extent um, exclusionary and always to some extent um, wants to assimilate or force others into assimilation. Or even if they do have a positive view of nationalism, it might actually be a really negative aspect right. of nationalism that a lot of people <laughs> wouldn't right. consider we, yeah. very good. Yeah, actually, I also have two things that came to mind when you asked the question. One of them, something that I noticed in Bukovina that was very interesting is that nationalism in this very standard way that we think of it, this idea of a homogeneous national community in one language, mm -hmm. didn't really work here because it was such a complicated place that even if you wanted to introduce, um, for example, national schools or monolingualism in education, it didn't work out because different nationalities were spread out over the territory of the province, so they weren't easily separated. And that actually forced nationalists to adapt to these conditions. So mm -hmm. you see, for example, Romanian nationalists in Bukovina writing these pamphlets about how, well, looking for pure blood here makes no sense because nobody is pure. So we, what we have to do is attract people uh, by, you know, like offering them cultural programs and everything in the national home. And they are also totally open to the idea of incorporating Ruthenians, for example. Although their, um, I guess their explanation, they were really great at uh, solving paradoxes, I guess, with the nationalist thought. One of them was, uh, we want a homogeneous Romanian community. Second, we can't achieve it because this is a diverse place. Third, actually, Ruthenians and Ukrainians are Romanians who forgot their language. Uh, and were assimilated by Ukrainians from Galicia, so it's really not a big deal that we are taking them in. So <laughs> it's very interesting how there's a lot of adjustment and flexibility. It's not like just one thing. And I think the other thing that this region does for me is uh, when I started my research, I just came in with this assumption that nationalism would be my driving question because it has been for the region for a long time. It's like the a thing that we keep returning to. Um, and I thought... You know, for a long time, I kept thinking, well, how can I move beyond this? And it just seemed artificial, you know, to just say, well, we are going to ignore it altogether and focus on something else or just do that. And something that it helped me do is, I guess, put it in um, in a broader framework that for me is defined by the problem of movement and mobility. So I began seeing how, for example, nationalists started mobilizing in response to in an increased mobility. And how before uh, these national nationalist elites that were quite isolated now managed to, I don't know, I mean, their movements increased a good deal because they mobilized in response to the mass exodus by forming economic cooperatives and doing all these other things they hadn't done before to reach the population. Right, and you, you alluded to sort of the places that don't work, which, of course, are always actually fruitful laboratories for the study of nationalism. The Ottoman Empire was a great case where people really struggled with how to you know, once it was clear that emancipatory nationalist discourses were leading to the breakup of, of different polities in the Ottoman Empire, um, you know, imagining like an Ottoman sort of pseudo-civic um, identity was one way that people tried to deal with this. And ultimately, this was a, you know, a, a great challenge for that small group of uh, 
intellectuals or maybe people of shared interest who were pushing um, th that ideology. It didn't work during the conflicts of the First World War, of course, um, in, a, in a period of uh, extreme um, tumult for, for a, a lot of reasons politically. Uh, and it kind of makes me think about the Soviet Union and, and you know, the Russian Empire is, of course, multi-ethnic. And the Soviet Union is sort of inherits... Uh, all of these regions uh, that are maybe experiencing the earliest inklings of nationalism. This is right at, you know, right at the end of the First World War, um, right before the League of Nations and all of that. So the Soviet model is really another place where nationalism didn't necessarily work, Marisha. Uh, I know that this is something you study a lot, especially with, with regard to Kazakhstan. But uh, Yeah, I think it's um, the question of uh, nationalism in the Soviet Union is uh, interesting in light of uh, what Malgorzata said about, um, you know, di different kinds of nationalism, uh, these two veins, right? Nationalism as a kind of top-down community-building project versus nationalism um, as, a, as an exclusionary force. Um, and what you see in the Soviet Union is uh, it, it varies, obviously, um, from republic to republic within the Soviet Union because they, they had sometimes drastically different starting points. Um, in the Soviet Union, you have this kind of, you could almost say, strange hybrid of these two veins um, because you had um, a state-driven project of ascribing national identities to people, which uh, in some cases was very complicated because of this idea, which was at the basis of, uh, of Soviet nationalities policy, that uh, you had to kind of ascribe national identity in order to diffuse uh, the specter of nationalism. So by kind of acknowledging nationalism, then you can kind of skip that and, and move on to something else. Is this like the logic? Of... Yeah, so you kind of meet, the idea is that you meet all the potential demands of nationalism. So you give people their uh, native language education, you give them a national literature, you give them a national theater. Mm. Um, and, you know, they kind of get that out of their system, and then you can truly yeah. unite along class lines instead of national lines. I think what's really interesting that in a country like the Soviet Union, that attempt at diffusing nationalism that way is never going to be successful, right? Because the one thing you're not willing to give, which actually nationalism breeds and is even a starting point for, is political power. Right. And again, the Soviet Union was not into power sharing, right? So it was actually in a way breeding potential further sources of its destruction, right? Actually further empowering national elites that could really take that national identity in some places against the Russian state that was excluding them. Yeah, I just wanted to say something about the Soviet period in Bukovina that I think really links to this. This is one of the most surprising things for me. I actually realized that all these goals that Ukrainian nationalist elites had before that they couldn't achieve, the Soviets did achieve after World War II. They basically turned Bukovina into an almost nationally homogeneous state with the help of World War II, obviously, mm. and the Holocaust. But also it's very interesting here because on the one hand, they did just what you were saying, Marisha, which is they, they began this campaign where they started building schools in the Ukrainian language. They made the Ukrainian language a compulsory official language. Also in the meetings of, um, I don't know, like the state officials and functionaries. 
But on the other hand, there was only one kind of Ukrainian nationalism that was accepted, and that was Soviet Ukrainian, because the actual Ukrainian nationalist organizations that had existed before were decapitated and eliminated in the first few years. It'd be really fascinating if somebody looked at actually how these policies in the Soviet Union developed and to what extent historical knowledge played in creating them, right? Even in my case, in the 19th century, you actually had Russia, uh, sorry, yeah, you had Russia basically doing the opposite, right? So it was first attacking Polish elites, but then it made the mistake of also going against the cultural practices of the masses. And that was sort of the fundamental error that switched the masses onto support, into supporting Polish mm. elites, right? They were never really willing to do it until these policies really started affecting their daily life. So this seems like something that actually could historically have arisen from mistakes that the Russian Empire had made earlier, you know, in realizing that actually if you, as long as you try not to force people to change their daily practices, they might actually be less willing to follow, to listen to nationalist calls that mm -hmm. having a national, you know, that having a political representation by somebody who is your same cult same culture, same language, same religion is actually going to make your life better. I was just going to suggest this book by Francine Hirsch, Empire of Nations, yeah, which wasn't necessarily, if I remember well, not about recruiting elites, but about how, you know, the Russian Empire worked together with anthropologists and ethnographers in classifying this population and assigning <laughs> nationalities and you know you see how all of a sudden things like the Uzbeks emerge and um, yeah, it's just fascinating how they're all concerned with tracing borders and actually I see this also in Bukovina done by uh, Austrians yeah. by the Austrian administration there are so many ethnographers I came across all these books from late uh, late 19th century that serve both as propaganda I guess showing off the diversity of the Habsburg Empire that they really were taking pride in and then trying to draw the boundaries between things like the Hutsuls, who kind of looked like Ukrainians, but were not really. And, you know, trying to find, yeah, what categories they belong Yeah, to. but I was going to say, I think the Habsburg were also doing it partly for the reason of sort of divide and conquer. Right. To actually oh, yeah, put yeah, populations yeah. against each other. So strengthening some of these yeah. differences. Yeah. Well, that's the, where the, the, the history of colonialism yeah. ties into the history of nationalism. Yeah. The Middle East is a place where that's definitely been felt, where, you know, you have yeah. a country like... France come in and actually try to create more national divisions in yeah. order to further legim legitimate like uh, an imperial yeah. overarching structure that will bring this uh, would-be fragmentary yeah. whole together. Uh, and this sort of connects to another question that's been in the back of my mind as you all are talking, which is that um, if, if we look again at the case of the Ottoman Empire, nationalism became really important towards the end of the Ottoman period in the lead up to the First World War. Um, you had these competing discourses of maybe Ottomanism, a multicultural identity, and dealing with these uh, in tensions of different national groups that are living in the empire. Yet when the empire fell apart, it wasn't so much along national lines as it was along the lines of religion. Um, for example, uh, in the population exchanges between Greece and Turkey, uh, it was religion that automatically that ultimately determined uh, where people would be sent. If you were Turkish-speaking, but you were a Greek Orthodox Christian, you were headed to Greece. If you were a Muslim who only spoke Greek and had lived on the island of Crete for 300 years, <laughs> uh, you were still headed to Turkey. And so even in this era when ethnic identity and nationalism is sort of coming to the fore, it was religion that ultimately uh, settled a lot of mm -hmm. these uh, 
conflict. This is, I mean, something that I think historians always talk about is this idea that nationalism as we think of it now is actually a fairly recent construct, right? And if we put ourselves into uh, sort of these periods, even again, the 19th century, nationalism was just being born, right? So coming back to my region. Mm -hmm. And the thing that had defined culture for such a long time was religion. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? There was no national education until the 19th century, for instance, in Congress, Poland, right? In late 19th century. So what were the institutions really replicating these cultures? It was churches that had been there for such a long time. And in some places, those religions went along uh, linguistic lines, which sort of made the classification in our mind easier or sort of a more natural nationalism. But it became problematic when it wasn't. But I mean, for me, it makes perfect sense that religion, right, because there were institutions really cultivating this idea of identity and these practices, these worldviews, these beliefs. And explains a lot about anti-Semitism in Europe. If you think about it as such a widespread phenomenon, especially in Europe during that period, across all these different countries, in a region where Jews are speaking the same languages, essentially, uh, as uh, the other people. The Christian populations. And you can't take out the role of, I mean, for my case, is the role of the church or the Catholic church mm-hmm. in actually perpetuating anti-Semitism, right? The church was actually sort of a key figure in this idea that you shouldn't assimilate, right? Religion was really a key part of a national identity. Mm. Well, I have something to say about that. Actually, something that I didn't really expect is I saw this among um, in nationalist propaganda in Bukovina, for example, that Jews and so-called clericals, which meant Orthodox priests, were kind of put into the same category by this new wave of nationalists who are all about providing welfare for the population and mm-hmm. so on. So they're kind of saying that both the Orthodox priests and the Jews are part of these older economic elites who control the population. I mean, anti-Semitism became really a really crucial component of um, Christian socialism, which also emerged there in the 19th century. Kind of came from, I, I would think, from Western Europe and from Austria, where already it was a big movement. Um, and the interesting thing is that Christian socialism brought together all these different nationalities around the issue of anti-Semitism, where other causes didn't manage to bring them together. So you'd see... The Romanian party forming alliances with Ukrainians and with Germans, you know, and the Romanians being the main drivers of this movement that was essentially German um, in its origins just because of this issue of anti-Semitism. And I'm sure, I mean, you know, I'm sure in the historiography of race, there must be a, a lot on, yeah. you know, this kind of convergence of, you know, of pan-Christian identity with these larger yeah. racial categories that sort of transcended national boundaries. But Marisha, maybe we can even sort of give you the last word here in in the discussion. Um, This is also something that's uh, relevant to the history of the Soviet Union, the struggle between religious authorities, especially the Orthodox Church uh, and uh, the Soviet state. And, um, you know, also the Soviet Union contained a large uh, Muslim population uh, that kind of comprised a number of the, the Soviet republics. So, you know, how do you see this interplay of nationalism and religion there? So in, uh, in the case of um, Soviet Central Asia, uh, which is uh, the region I study, uh, I think it's very interesting if you think about um, the, the Russian, uh, the imperial Russian government versus the Soviet government um, and their respective approaches to these populations. Um, often before 1917, imperial officials would refer to the populations of um, 
uh, the, the countries that are now, you know, the, the five independent uh, states of Central Asia as Muslims, right? And they would write about people speaking the Muslim language. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, <laughs> actually, <laughs> among some officials persisted even in, into, into the early 20s. But um, it was um, because the, the, the Russian Empire was a multinational, or I guess a multi-ethnic state, but also a multi-confessional state, whose religious policies varied over time. Um, in the case of Central Asia, um, most notably, uh, were characterized by uh, uh, the official policy in the, the late 19th century was ignoring Islam. There was this notion that, you know, ignore Islam and it will go away. Um, <laughs> uh, but it is, you had, um, you had this uh, decided shift from uh, conceiving of people primarily in religious terms um, to looking at these populations uh, in national categories. Uh, which arguably is why we have these five particular nation states today, because of decisions made um, in uh, in the early 1920s about uh, national delimitation and determining which populations belonged to uh, which national groups. Well, thanks, Marcia. I mean, some of this for our listeners has probably been well-tread ground in the study of nationalism. Some of it was really new for me. I'm really grateful to all of you, Christina, Magajata, Marisha, for being part of this conversation. Thanks for coming on the program. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, That concludes our conversation about the frontiers of nationalism in Eastern Europe. For those who have stayed to the end, probably are are looking to read a bit more about the subject. And for that purpose, we do have a bibliography on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Uh, where you'll find uh, further reading on the different things we've talked about today. That's also a great place to leave your comments and questions uh, and get in touch with the Ottoman History Podcast community on Facebook. Now getting really close to 30,000 followers, and we're really uh, grateful to all of you uh, for following our, our ongoing episodes. That's all for this episode. Thanks once again for tuning in, and join us next time.